Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Patricia Poitvian. Dr. Poitvian attended undergraduate and medical school at Brown University, after which she completed a master's in clinical investigation at New York University School of Medicine. She completed residency in pediatrics at NYU Medical Center, where she also served as chief resident. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the Warren Alpert Medical School at Brown University, which is based at Hasbro Children's Hospital. The residency program director and also serves as the assistant dean for the Office of Diversity and Multicultural Affairs, an area in which she has published and spoken nationwide. Dr. Poitvian, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So can you tell me about yourself, aside from the information I've already provided and how you came to work where you do? Sure. My I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. That's where I was born and raised to two immigrant parents and both immigrated from Haiti and spent most of my life actually in New York mm-hmm. until coming to Brown to do undergrad and medical school and then returning to New York to do my training and really start most of my professional career. And then I got an opportunity here uh, in Rhode Island to do some work that was really aligned with the things that I love to do most, uh, which is train residents and really take a critical look at how we deliver medical education through the lens of someone who uh, identifies as someone who is not that common to find in medical education. Uh, so being able to do that was uh, an opportunity that was hard to pass up. So I moved my whole New Yorker family, including my New Yorker husband and my, um, by association, New Yorker kids uh, to Rhode Island, which, uh, which mm-hmm. has been a wild adventure, but a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah there d- definitely, there are some similarities, but some differences, I'm sure, as well. So <laughs> yes. um, many, many having myself, my, my, yeah, I was going to say my children like to remind me um, as they are both huge New York sports fans that moved to New England was one of the cruelest jokes that I could have played on them. Uh, But as uh, Yankee fans and Giants fans, they're, they're holding it down. They're holding it down in New England. They're pretty tough. It is. I, and you know, as someone who grew up in, I don't know what Kentucky considers itself, the Midwest slash the South, I sort of thought of this area of the country, including New York and New England is sort of like up there. And until you're up here, you don't realize how different it is and how, oh, yeah. um, you know, almost tribal those team sports uh, rivalries can feel. And it is, um, it's very personal. It, it is very personal. And I think tribal <laughs> is the perfect adjective for it. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Adjective. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So I first met you, air quotes, met you when you gave a virtual talk discussing what you were uh, calling radical authenticity. I'd like to talk more about what you said in that talk and start at the beginning. Um, can you tell me about your family and how you think they shaped who you are? I was particularly interested in your grandmother, although your whole family sounds like it's um, full of wonderful female role models. So, <laughs> uh, Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, so yeah, radical authenticity is, is a concept that I have come to uh, realize that I've had the pleasure of living for quite some time without realizing I was doing it. Um, as you mentioned, I come from a, a very rich family. As I said before, my, my family uh, were all Haitian. And so and there were 
very strong female role models uh, in that family. Uh, so I was really fortunate to be a part of this. My mom is one of five sisters, um, born to a very strong-willed um, Asian woman, my grandmother, who is one of the most incredible women uh, I've ever known in my, in my life. She passed away just two years ago um, at the age, at the ripe old age of 96. And, wow. Yeah, yeah, and she was just incredible in everything that she did. And um, my mom, all of my aunts and my grandmothers were practitioners of radical authenticity. I don't think they would have described it that way. Um, but being uprooted, you know, having to leave your homeland to come to a strange place with a strange language and strange customs and having to reinvent yourself and, and recreate who you are in this new environment uh, I think can can breed radical authenticity. It can breed lots of different responses. It just so happened that in my family, it yeah. bred a lot of radical authenticity, really women looking to create identities for themselves that they were comfortable with, that they um, that really reflected the power that they felt, that reflected the individuality and the autonomy that they felt, uh, and really having an opportunity to redefine themselves because they were in this in this new place. And so for most of my life, I was surrounded by women who were who were constantly reinventing who they were and challenging what other people thought they were. Uh, and so that was, mm -hmm. that was the model that I had to go off of. Um, and now as, uh, as a, a slightly older woman, I will not reveal my age, <laughs> through lots of experiences where my identity was um, preconceived, maybe even predetermined by other people, challenged by many people, I realized just how important that radical authenticity is, just how important recognizing who you are as a person is, not only mm -hmm. for yourself, but in making sure that other people can't write your narrative for you. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really privileged to have a chance to get to practice it in my professional life and even in my personal life now. Yeah. And I, um, even lately, I mean, I feel like I don't know if it'll ever go away, but people talk a lot about this, you know, with this thing called imposter syndrome, which mm -hmm. I, I believe in, and I believe it's a thing, but I think it probably manifests very differently in different people. But it's almost like what you're saying, radical authenticity is the antidote or the opposite of imposter syndrome. Um, and it can be challenging, especially as a woman in academics or a woman in any position of leadership to not listen to the voices in your head, right? And to, so it almost sounds like instead of listening to those voices, you have this, um, you know, like the Greek chorus and those old plays that you sort of had to read in high school. Um, you have like this Greek chorus of, of women from your family and you can just turn to them and be like, is this for real? And they can just be like, come on, come you know, on. no. Exactly. Listen, listen to yourself. Don't listen to those fools, etc. Um, so that's lovely. Um, I would also like to talk, you talked in, in your, in your talk that I, I listened to about, um, how you were seen by your colleagues in your time working in the preoperative area. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what your responsibilities were there. I know you're a pediatrician. Um, I think you gave voice to what many female physicians feel, uh, this sinking sense that every time you assert yourself, you're labeled a certain way that your male counterparts never are. This is not unique to medicine, but, um, it's, of course, made worse for women of color like yourself. Uh, can you talk about this experience and how it shaped your career? 
Oh, sure. Uh, when I finished residency, um, I, I did a chief resident year at NYU and, um, right afterwards actually thought I wanted to do outpatient practice. So I joined a, a pediatric practice in New Jersey and had presumed for most of my career that that's what I wanted to do. And so month three of being a, a, a private pediatrician, I came to the conclusion that actually it's not at all what I was meant to do, which was devastating. <laughs> so I Oh, that's that's not very long for that realization. That's yeah, especially because yeah. I held the assumption for such a long time. You know, like I the whole time mm -hmm. I've, I've known I've wanted to be a pediatrician since I was very like quite young. I was seven years old uh, when I had the discussion with my mom, and she helped me to pronounce the word pediatrician because I couldn't even pronounce it back then. Um, but I told her, <laughs> I told her. Your mom literally put the word in your mouth. You know what I mean? That's literally, great. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Uh, she did not play yeah. around. My mom did. Um, and so I told her that I wanted to spend, you know, she asked me one day what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I told her I wanted to be a babysitter. And she asked me why. And I said, well, because I really want to take care of children. And she said, well, you should be a children's doctor. And I said, okay, that sounds great. Uh, and she said, that's a pediatrician. And so we practice saying pediatrician so that when people ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I could tell them pediatrician. <laughs> had that ready to go. Yeah, you had it ready to go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so really for most of my life, I thought I wanted to do outpatient medicine. Uh, and when yeah. I was in residency, I was convinced I wanted to do outpatient medicine. Again, I did a whole extra chief year. So plenty of time to do some soul searching there. And I did my soul searching and I thought, yep, general pediatrics is for me. And three months in, I realized that I had made a mistake. So I was in a little bit of trouble um, because I had to figure out what my next move was going to be. And the, a position opened up at our, um, at an orthopedic hospital that was affiliated with where I trained. And they were looking for basically inpatient pediatric physicians to help manage orthopedic surgical patients, pediatric orthopedic surgical patients, um, both operatively and then post-operatively. And so I figured, okay, while I'm figuring my life out, maybe I should do this. I, you know, I gave notice at my practice um, and figured, you know, there's some flexibility here. It was really a lot of shift work. Uh, and so I joined the orthopedic hospital doing this work. Um, and a couple of months in, the woman who was leading that program made the announcement that she was leaving. And so Oh, <laughs> all of uh, yeah. four or five months of experience under my belt, the division director of pediatric orthopedics asked me to be the interim director, which I thought was, oh, welcome to the deep end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I just showed up here. What are you guys crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm still figuring out where the cafeteria is. Are you sure? Like, <laughs> yeah, precisely, yeah. precisely. Yeah. Um, but I said, yes, because, you know, that's kind of what I do. I'm just like, sure, I can do that. No problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, it'll just be for a short period of time anyway, because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and they were going to presumably find somebody else to take this job. So I was like, yeah, I can do that. Uh, I ended up staying in that role as medical director of that unit for 10 years. So not so, not so temporary oh, wow. <laughs> where, yeah. where I had an opportunity really to grow uh, as a pediatrician and as a leader, I had an opportunity to do a lot of program development um, which I loved, uh, really learning about best practices for um, preoperative services in pediatric patients and postoperative management, uh, particularly in patients 
who are who are developmentally delayed. We had a, a really large patient population um, of children with cerebral palsy who would come in for multiple orthopedic procedures, and they had lots of comorbidities. Right. So really learning how to um, right. optimize their health was a big part of what I got a chance to do. And I did that under the guise of, uh, again, really leading the department. I got a chance to develop a hospitalist division and recruit individuals and mentor individuals. So I really, really had a chance to grow. Um, in my career, uh, I also had a, a lot of opportunity to work with orthopedic surgeons, which is uh, an position to be in as a pediatrician. Um, there weren't many pediatricians in the hospital, uh, other than the people who came in and worked for my section. I was really the the only pediatrician, and um, most colleagues then were orthopedic surgeons. And so again, it, it creates a, an interesting dynamic. Um, I can say in that entire hospital, I was, let me see, for most of my time, I was the only clinician of color who was a woman. There were mm-hmm. other men of color, um, but I was the only woman of color. There was a woman who ended up coming to do a fellowship. So she was there for a couple of years and then she left. Um, but I was really the only woman of color that most of the orthopedic surgeons interacted with. And... Okay. So go ahead. You were the only person of color that many of these people encountered, I'm guessing, yes, on yes. a work basis. Definitely. Yeah. And certainly only the the only woman of color that they had a chance to really work with and talk with. Um, and so in my role, in, in my role as a leader, it was very interesting to navigate that dynamic, um, to be the only pediatrician, because again, there were orthopedic surgeons generally working with other orthopedic surgeons, um, to oftentimes be the only person of color in the room and almost always to be the only woman of color in the room um, was always very interesting. <laughs> and it was um, a little bit of trial by fire, but just as I said earlier, it helped me to hone a lot of my leadership skills because I had to, I had to really define a role for myself. I had to define an identity for myself and I needed to do it quickly um, because clearly the orthopedic surgeons were ready to do it for me. And the way they were defining me was not anything that I was interested in. So uh, I had to work it out. Mm -hmm. I had to work it out with, with a sense of urgency. Okay. Yeah. That seems like it was, uh, it's sort of like grabbing you straight from your training and putting you on an island almost. It's hard to imagine that in a city like New York, there's still enclaves um, which are so protected from the what I know is a more diverse population and experience. So um, you certainly did have to figure that out, I bet. So, you know, two observations so, um, I can yeah. share with you is that uh, what is usually a surprise to many people is that the academic medical field in New York is not very much different than the academic medical field everywhere else. So the, Oh, how does <laughs> So the presumption yeah. is that because our patient populations are so much more diverse in New York, which they are, um, that the medical field is way more diverse. And when you look at academics, unfortunately, it, it's not that way, not even in general pediatrics. Um, And so it's not uncommon if you're working at an academic institution um, on the island of Manhattan that you are the only person of color or maybe one or two people of color in a room of leaders, sometimes just in a a departmental meeting, uh, to be quite honest. 
Um, and so those enclaves are, are still very much alive and well, even in a city um, like New York. And the enclave of being in an orthopedic hospital, so just kind of knowing that broadly and then making it more narrow, uh, as you said, being on an island of um, sorts uh, yeah. with orthopedic surgeons definitely definitely heightened that uh, that sensation, no doubt about it. But it also probably made you, I don't like throwing around the word survivor, but it probably honed your survival skills in a way that maybe it wouldn't have if you hadn't been in that particular situation. Um, I, I think you already talked a, a little bit about radical office, authenticity and how you came to this realization. Do you think the way that you define that since the recent changes in our country, the the calls for social change. Do you think how you see that has changed or do you think this experience of being on what I'm thinking of as like the orthopedic pediatric hospital Island, you sort of um, developed yourself in, do you think that set itself and now you're just living that or do you think it changes? Do you think it's changed recently? Cause the country certainly feels different to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, the country, um, the way I would describe it is is not so much that the country feels so different to me. I feel like for most of my life, and I, I think many people of color who function in academics or even function in a professional workspace have often felt that they live in two different worlds. Um, where you have a, okay. a personal world where it, you're very comfortable as a person of color, you um, have identities and experiences that you share with other people of color, but those identities and those experiences never come up in your work life because you're literally leaving a world where you might be surrounded by individuals who look like you, sound like you, have your experiences, and you leave that world to go to, in my, in my, in my world, a hospital. And in the hospital, there are rarely people who look like you, sound like you, and share your experience, who share your experiences, who are also physicians. And so you're constantly in these mm -hmm. two worlds. Um, and for it's not so much that the world feels so different now. It's that th my world seemed to be colliding a little bit more where the professional world seems to now be aware that there's a whole other personal world that's been going on for me, that my life as a black woman has impacted so much of what I do and who I am. And maybe my work world never realized that before, never cared to realize that before. But now they're like, oh, Right. Um, so things are a little bit different for you as a black person. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, right. And so for me, it's like, yeah, right. this life, my whole my my whole life, I've been a black person my entire life, and so this world feels yeah. very similar to me. It just doesn't feel like I have to, um, as we say, code switch as much as I used to. Uh, so that's the that's what yeah for me right now. And. And I wonder also what you're talking about reminds me of the times when I lived abroad, right? When you would maybe be in a space where you were with people who spoke English, et cetera, and then you would go back into the culture where I was learning actually to speak Spanish and how your my mannerisms would change. And I just felt a little bit more stressed um, trying to sort of put on the rules of a different world and how that may have mirrored what your relatives felt when they came here from a different country, right? And to to realize as a white person that there are people like you 
who it's not because say you're at home speaking a language and then you go to work and have to speak a different language. You're, you feel like you live in two different worlds and both of those worlds are theoretically American. Does that make sense? Yes, it absolutely makes crazy. And And it's crazy. Nuts. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, I, I'm sort of ashamed of myself that I'd never realized that that was happening before. I remember as a resident talking to a person of color and they said something to me like, well, I can't talk at work the way I talk at home. And I was like, really? I do. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, I kind of liken this experience of sort of waking up and realizing this to just being slapped over and over again, like someone who's waking up out of a, a trance or something. So um, I just say on my, on behalf of me that I appreciate your patience. So, um, uh, <laughs> so, uh, diversity, this word diversity, it's been, you know, talked about for a long time, but I think it's kind of come to the forefront in a way, at least to me and you're, you know, obviously not to you, it feels different than it did before the death of George Floyd. Um, you've been involved, however, in diversity work for a long time. Can you tell me what got you interested in working in that field? And then from your perspective, um, specifically in your work in that area, what has changed for you, say, in the past six months? Sure. Uh, what got me interested is probably just my own personal experience. Um, as you, as we've just been talking about, being the only is an experience I've had for most of my life, being the only Black person or Black woman in my private school, being the only Black person in my college class, being the only black person on my dorm floor, this was not unusual. Um, And so for most of my life, I just thought this is what I had to do. And then as I move forward in my career, I realized more and more that no, um, this is not what I have to do. On the contrary, what I have to do is change that because it's it's not fun. Um, And just like you came to the real it sounds it's, it is a hundred percent exhausting. And just like you came to the realization uh, in speaking with your friend that you don't have to change the way you speak when you go home, you know, when you compare how you speak at home versus how you speak at work, yeah. it also came to, it also, um, I also realized that if I didn't want to have to live that life and sort of code switch all the time that I needed to be actively engaged in changing that scenario and changing that dynamic. And I thought, okay, well, here's the way to do it, um, is really to, to utilize my, my narratives, my stories, um, and some of the leadership roles that I've had a chance to play to make an impact, uh, to make things a little bit different, not only for those coming up behind me, but also just for myself, for those people who are in my life right now, <laughs> um, who are also difficulties mm-hmm. uh, in their academic environments and in their academic pursuits. Um, and then in terms of how things feel mm-hmm. differently now, um, it, it's hard to tease out because I know that personally I've gone through a lot of evolution in terms of what I expect out of the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. And at the same time that I'm going through this evolution, mm-hmm. I think that society has been going through a little bit of an evolution as well. Uh, certainly when I began doing this work, um, I had a very rudimentary understanding of what this work entailed, uh, which I'll, I think that's common for a lot of individuals who don't spend time studying this. Um, I don't have an advanced degree in equity and inclusion work. My advanced degree is just in plain old medicine. Uh, and so the rest of it, I had to uh, learn on my own and rely on the expertise of others who have done this studying and who have done this work and do a lot of reading uh, to really catch up with what needs to happen when you're trying to make 
institutional and structural change around equity. Um, and so at first, when I began, it was very much about compositional diversity. Uh, and then it became about um, inclusivity. And just recently, I, I feel like I've evolved personally into, into demanding equity. And, and what demanding equity looks like for me is fundamentally changing the environment of academic medicine to make it more welcoming for individuals who are diverse, but importantly, to make it reflect the, the um, values of those individuals who are diverse. And so I will often, just as an example, I'll often hear questions like, you know, Pat, how do I make my residency program more diverse? Or how, you know, how do I make, um, how do I recruit more diverse faculty into my department? And the first thing I say to them is, well, if you have a toxic environment, please do not to teach you how to mm -hmm. recruit more people into that toxic environment. Yeah, like throwing flies into a fly trap, you know, why would exactly. you do that? Exactly. So this is not about using um, numbers or you having more people um, to show up uh, so that you can say that your, your department or your residency program is diverse. This is really about fundamentally looking at your system and understanding why diverse individuals don't want to be a part of your system. Like, what is it about your department? What mm -hmm. is it about your institution that is signal signaling to individuals who have different perspectives and different backgrounds that that is not a place for them? That's where the work has to be. And I talk about that at a local level when we're talking about residency programs, but I also think about it in a more, in a broader level within academic medicine. We as physicians and academics mm -hmm. need to look at academic medicine and ask ourselves, why is it that? People that people who are diverse don't want to stay here. Why are women of color of color fleeing <laughs> academic medicine? You look at AAMC numbers, and our numbers of, number of individuals who are mm -hmm. who are underrepresented in medicine keep going down. What is it in academic medicine that is turning people mm -hmm. off? That's where the work has to start. So personally, that's where I feel like I've evolved, and I think that the medical community. Uh, in reflecting on what's happening within society is slowly getting to that point as well, where they realize this is not about the people. This is not about the individuals who are not willing to compromise their own mental well-being to be a part of our twisted and toxic <laughs> environment. This is about the twisted and toxic environment. And so I think society yeah. is also slowly coming to that realization. This is not about Black people. This is about the environment that makes it so difficult for Black people to thrive in. And so you really have to start looking at that environment and not at the individuals who are suffering at the hands of the environment. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel to the sort of, um, you know, transition that people are, are looking at in our nation of, of sort of almost like victim blaming, but I don't know, I'm not proficient enough in the terminology to know if that's the precise right term, but sort of looking at the effect and saying, well, it's probably this group of people aren't um, trying hard enough, working hard enough, aren't fitting in and stepping back even a step further and saying, well, maybe it's actually right. the system that's not serving these folks, that's not setting them up to succeed. And I read something the other day about listening and how listening is the highest form of respect. And I think to take that one step further, humility is something that is a prerequisite for really listening and hearing people. And as I interact in these spaces, 
and not as a person of color, but as a woman in academics, also um, an underrepresented group, um, but not nearly to the same extent. I think um, if you don't have people who are willing to hear you and listen with humility, um, you can't ever really get past that first hurdle of what you're talking about, which is like saving and correcting the system. And if you do that, then people will thrive. Does that sound, I don't know. I've been thinking about <laughs> No, I think, I think that's, um, I think that's an incredibly important point. I think that humility is, is key. Um, not only in being able to hear other people's stories and other people's narratives, but also in admitting that you, that you did not know that you are a part of the system and that perhaps have been upholding yeah. the system this whole time. I think that's where the humility is really important. For the most part, um, people can hear other people's stories. They do well with that. They can hear other people's um, suffering. And I think in, in medicine in particular, this is kind of what this draws us to medicine. We want to mm -hmm. help people. We want to hear their stories. We want to help them feel better. And so for the most part, most physicians will be empathetic and can be humble in listening to other people's stories. I think the challenge is applying that same humility to the accountability, right? It's, it's, the, it's the personal responsibility yeah. that um, many of us have. And I say us, myself included, because as long as you're a part of the system, you've been complicit in the system. And so to really be humble, be able to, to self-reflect right. and say, not only do I hear your story, but I also see how I, I, um, I'm complicit in it, how I have contributed to this negative impact in your story. Because unless you have the ability to say that, then you there's no way that you're empowered to change the system. And I think that's the key that most people yeah. struggle with. And that's a that's a really hard step for a lot of people to take. Yeah, and I think. This idea of exceptionalism, which I think in medicine we really embrace um, because it's such a hard journey to become a physician. I think remaining completely emotionally intact through the entire process of undergraduate, applying for medical school, medical school, applying for residency, residency, fellowships, early career. I mean, that's like an emotional uh, roller coaster. Um, and to come out of that with and be able to say, yes, I'm part of this system and I'm part of the problem. It's, it's like, it can't get past the lips of a lot of people. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, it does. Um, it does. it's hard. I, I, think. I think whenever people have a, to admit that they are a part of someone else's suffering, it's a challenge. You know, wants, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be complicit in the suffering or the difficulty or the challenge of another human being's life. Especially yeah, especially right. people who consider themselves healers. Uh, to shift just slightly up to the year 2020, which I think all of us <laughs> are pretty tired of at this point, um, the pandemic seems to be just touching everything, especially those in underserved and underrepresented communities. Can you tell me a little bit about what 2020 has been like for you? Was there a certain moment when you realized that life was going to change? Um, here in Rhode Island, we had uh, not nearly what New York City had, but you say that you're from New York City, so I'm sure you still have friends and family, people you know and love there. That was a really rough time. Um, what has practicing medicine looked like for you since COVID? Um, so I feel like most of the change that's occurred for me has changed mainly as a program director and less as a pediatrician. Um, in general, COVID has not impacted okay. children to the extent 
that it's impacted adults clinically. And so most of what my colleagues in adult medicine and in, critical, in an adult critical care medicine have had to face are not the same challenges that we've had to face in pediatrics. Certainly we have pediatric patients who, um, who suffer from, from COVID-19 and who become critically ill, but certainly not in the numbers um, that our adult medicine colleagues uh, saw. So as a, as a hospitalist, which is what I do clinically, um, we've had a handful of patients who are COVID-19 positive who we've cared for, but that has not, I, I think I can safely say it has not been as impactful on our clinical practice as it has for our adult colleagues. Uh, what was significant for me was how my mm -hmm. residents were experiencing um, what was happening with COVID-19 and how we as a residency program needed to change and evolve to really continue to meet the needs of the residents and our patients um, in the time of COVID. And that part was, was very, very challenging. Um, first and foremost, uh, as a residency program director, you feel very responsible for your residents. I think every program director would say that to you. Um, we feel responsible not only for our residents' education, but in general for their well-being. There's a, a sense of, um, you know, I don't want to sound maternalistic. Uh, these are these are adults, so it's not it's not like I'm their mom it or is, anything. But you, but it is a maternalistic sort of yeah. It's a it's yes. an advisory and a care role that sort of maybe most cl closely approximates parental sort of uh, guidance. And there was a almost. lot of anxiety yeah. um, around. Especially in the beginning, there was mm -hmm. such a lack of knowledge and understanding of how this was going to impact us all as healthcare workers. There was a lack of availability of PPE and a lack of understanding of what PPE you actually needed to protect yourself. Um, uh, just like in the general population, I have residents who have chronic illnesses and residents who were pregnant, and there was a lot of concern, and, and residents who live with elderly mm. parents. Um, and Lot of concern around how mm -hmm. am I going to balance my professional responsibilities as a clinician and come to work every day while also balancing the concerns that I have just as a regular, normal human being. Um, and I felt like it was my responsibility to help yeah. the residents kind of go through this process, but also to find clarity for them, to find PPE for them, to find out what the latest um, uh, research was to confirm that what the hospital was telling us and what the CDC was telling us, because there were so many different things that we were hearing to really confirm that these were accurate assessments and that the advice was accurate because the residents were counting on me to make sure that what I was telling them was, was true and accurate and was going to be safe for them. And so that was um, the most dramatic for right. me, that sense of responsibility and trying to help navigate um, many of my residents through that. Uh, and then also making sure that we were still training them and teaching them. You know, uh, during COVID, so many of our patients who were not sick stopped coming to the hospital, stopped coming to outpatient clinic appointments, um, sometimes because we were instructing them not to, um, sometimes because families were afraid to bring their children to the hospital. Um, and so our went down and the mm -hmm. residents exposure to their patients went down as a result. So how do you make sure that they're continuing to learn um, for months when our patient volumes are not reflective of what they've been in the past? So there was also a sense of, okay, now we have to kind of reinvent how resident education happens because we can't do it the old fashioned way anymore and we can't just stop teaching you guys. Um, so how do we continue 
training. So those were, those were mm-hmm. definitely the most um, important for me. And while all of this was going on in the time of COVID, also understanding that at the same exact time, the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor were really starting, Ahmaud Arbery were really starting to hit the headlines. And so there were a group of my residents who were, you know, and I have to say many of my residents were really impacted by these deaths, um, by these murders. And certainly my residents who are individuals um, who are underrepresented were severely impacted. So while all of this was going on, also balancing and addressing their, you know, their other, um, I don't want to say identities, because they, they, I hope they come to work with their full identities all the time. But while we were all thinking about COVID and, and how COVID was impacting our professional lives, there were also residents who were thinking about how the murders of innocent Black men and women were impacting their personal lives and how they were impacting the lives of our patients. Um, and then mm-hmm. you sort of add to that the disparities of COVID and how some people were thinking about the concerns that maybe they had for their own parents because black and brown adults were really impacted by COVID-19 differently um, than, than white adults. And so, sure, we're pediatricians, so maybe this isn't showing up in our patient care. But again, we're also human beings who have parents and uncles and aunts and grandparents and Many of my residents were concerned with how their parents and how their family members um, were dealing with these um, disparate numbers. So there was there was a lot. There was really a lot going on for the trainees. A lot. Yeah, it's been a quite a year. Um, as as program director, how do you think that your work on diversity, equity, and inclusion overlaps with that work? I think it. Is, is it seamless? Is it something you have to actually think about or is it just sort of all happening? It's definitely something I have to think about. Time. Um, again, having spent most of my life carefully mm-hmm. separating out my personal identity from my professional work, uh, primarily because I thought I had to in order to be successful. Um, it has been a revelation for me to be able to incorporate and, and really leverage my personal identity and the professional work that I do. And so I'm very intentional about the impact that I have on my trainees as a woman of color, both on my trainees who are not underrepresented minorities and my trainees who are. Um, I think that intentionality is important uh, in how I in how I speak with them and how I choose which topics to prioritize in how I convey my concerns and my sympathies and my empathies, um, I, I do have to be intentional about it. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Um, since you're involved in medical education, what do you think the impact of the recent calls for social change have been or will so be? So I'm always hopeful education? of the, um, the advantage of being an educator is that you're always working with newer, fresher perspectives and minds in the form of students and trainees. And we are too um, caught up in our own worldview. Our trainees and our students force us to face what's happening around us uh, in the best way possible. It's really something that I see as a privilege uh, in terms of working in medical education. And it allows me to because just when I think mm-hmm. nothing is going to change, 
um, a student or a resident wakes up and says, oh, no, everything's going to change right now today. And I'm like, oh, OK, thank goodness. Everything is going to change right now. Today. So it's good. <laughs> <laughs> OK, that would be great. So yeah, let's I, do that. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm uh, I know very optimistic yeah. Um, yeah. that that things will continue to advance in medical education so that we can best serve our patients. I think changing the structures around us that have centered on white heteronormative male experiences is not only hurtful to those of us who don't fall into that identity um, as practitioners, but also hurtful to our patients. Our patients don't fit to that dynamic. And so really having mm-hmm. an understanding that human beings, their perspectives, their stories, their narratives, where they come from is so different understanding that and truly accepting that into what we do as physicians only makes us better physicians. Uh, And so hopeful that as students and trainees continue to push us and continue to push the boundaries of what it means to incorporate social justice into medical education, what it means to practice medicine in in a socially conscious way, as they continue to push us to do this, I am extraordinarily hopeful that our patients will be the ultimate benefactors. That's a really good point. Um, So now comes the time for me to ask you for advice. I would love to hear how you approach having difficult conversations with colleagues and folks who are not rising to the challenge of treating you or those around you with respect. Um, I got the sense from listening to you speak that you are someone who... (laughs) doesn't have trouble speaking up on your own behalf, but I'm just wondering, and I mean that in the best sense, trust me. Um, I'm wondering, number one, were you always like that? Is this something you learned in this little orthopedic island that you lived on for a while? Or um, what are pointers that you would have for um, like people who uh, feel like it's hard, it's hard to speak up on your own behalf? It is really hard. I was not always like this. Um, it took, it took some coaching, mm-hmm. uh, part of my, you, you made mention of a Greek chorus earlier when we, were, when we were speaking and you said in my Greek chorus, there were, um, all of these wonderful Haitian women, which there, there are, there are a lot of wonderful women in my, in my chorus, um, encouraging me to go on, but there <laughs> is, um, oh, there, are, there are also many yeah. male voices and one of the male voices who I'll give a little bit of credit to in this podcast, oh. I'll probably regret it as soon as I say it is my husband. Uh, so, um, uh, my husband uh, was one of the people who often pushed me to be more demanding in terms of how people spoke to me and how people treated me, um, particularly as I was more and more Uh challenged in my professional life. You know, as I shared for many reasons, my personal life and my professional life did not always look the same. Um, and in my personal life, I never had any difficulty telling people exactly right. what I wanted and how I wanted them to treat me. Um, my husband can attest to that. And so he would listen to me um, on phone <laughs> calls um, with surgeons who would call me and complain about things and with administrators who um, would call. And I would hang up the phone and he would say, why do you talk to them like that? And I would say, what are you, what, what are you talking about? He said, when you talk to me, you're never that deferential. Like, why don't you just tell them what you want and tell them to stop messing with you? I, I don't I don't get it. 
And every single time I hung up, he would question me and he would push me. He'd be like, this is not you. You don't take anybody's crap. So why are you taking their uh-huh. crap? And it was some time, um, it, it, at first, mm-hmm. uh, of course, I dismissed him. And I was like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I, I quickly realized that he was he was right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that the, the same standard that I held uh, for my personal relationships, I was not holding for my professional relationships. And so I, with his encouragement, I began to do it a little bit more. I was like, all right, I'm going to. You know, I'm going to be a little bit more transparent about what I want, what I need, um, and what's important to me. And it was relatively easy for me to make that transition because usually I, I felt comfortable with the reason behind it, uh, meaning that I had to feel that I was demanding right. this type of communication, not just for my ego or to make myself feel better, but that it was something that was critically important to how I was managing a patient or critically important to how I was managing my, my section and the hospitals who worked for me, as long as I could see it through that lens, that making certain that people were respecting me and responding to me in a way that, that I found acceptable, as long as I could see it through the lens of, and then I can do my job better or I can serve these people better. It became very, very easy for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was one of those processes that once you start doing it and you survive, you're like, oh, this isn't bad at all. I just made these other people uncomfortable for like, I don't know, a minute. And then they did exactly what I wanted them to do, which was treat me respectfully, right? <laughs> and it's not, it's not, a, it's not a big task. It's like, treat me respectfully. I treat everybody yeah. else respectfully. Yeah. You should also treat me respectfully. Um, and so each time I had an opportunity, an opportunity to do it and I survived, I was like, oh, all right. Um, this is, this is how it works. And one of the things, um, one of the pearls of wisdom my husband shared with me, he, he's an attorney. And so, uh, his ability, (laughs) yeah, his, his ability to perfect. um, Yeah. Others nonsense is actually pretty low. So (laughs) one of the things he always told me. Yeah. Well, and he's probably very, like very, um, articulate in like a formal way attorneys are always really good at sort of packaging their arguments and sort of tossing any, at you you know it's like their skill so i'm sure when he heard you arguing without case, any he was concern like, for how anybody else feels right so he's <laughs> like i don't show why, why you care about how everybody else feels and that's what i'm like oh geez. Think, well well i haven't i have a small uh just aside to say um there's, there was a time recently when I was literally, I had to give a big presentation and I was very nervous. So I made a script and then I asked my husband, I said, can I practice this with you? And he said, yeah. And he got, we got a couple of slides in and he was like, wait a second, why are you saying that? It makes it sound like you don't know what you're talking about. Take that whole ass sentence out. Don't tell them that you want their whatever. Wow. He's like, just say yeah. the facts and just move on. And I'm like, really? He's like, that's what I would do. And I was like, oh, you know, like the, this is just a whole different way of seeing the world. I think, I mean, through some, I'm not, I'm generalizing, but I think the general sort of male perspective on things. I sometimes completely agree. Like, Here's my opinion. Deal with it. And I, I think women a lot of times don't feel that way. Uh, generalization. I realize that, but I think yes. a lot of times no, women I feel like we agree should with apologize. You. I, think that we are, opinion, I think women so. in general are socialized and certainly women of color, but I think women overall are to seek approval and acceptance where yeah. men are not that way. And so my husband was confused with yeah. why I was 
Yeah. Like you're in charge. Asking people for stuff. Just tell them what to do. Um, And so uh, one of the things that he's always um, told me, which I 100% agree with is, you know, people will treat you the way you allow them to treat you. So if you don't respect and create boundaries for what you find acceptable and unacceptable, if you don't do that right off the bat, people will continue in a way that you find unacceptable you have to create mm-hmm. that you have to define the rules of that relationship yeah. um and i think that's what i discovered is when i when i voice my discontent yeah. or my um my disapproval of how someone treated me it made things uncomfortable for a little while but it also really shifted the dynamic and i never really had to worry that this person was going to treat me this way ever again um they might call me names which is not something I'm particularly concerned about. Um, but if in our that's another skill that I think uh, as a person I need to hone. So, no yeah, worries. Going to borrow a lot of advice um, from you today. But uh, <laughs> but um, but in that interaction <laughs> with me, if if you're treating me the way that I think I deserve and the way that I've defined, then I've made progress. So I don't really care that you were uncomfortable. I don't really care that you call me names. Um, I, I would often hear from other individuals, you know, like with, with all things that I had allies in administration. I had individuals who did not like me in administration. My allies would always come and tell me, you know, Pat, they're all scared of you. They call you the B word. And I'd say, oh, good. God. <laughs> that means I don't have to worry about how they treat me in the future. And then when I speak, I only have to yeah. say something once and not a thousand times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose if you have to choose between people thinking you're a doormat and thinking you're the B word, I mean, I suppose I would pick the latter if there's really only two options. The other thing that made it a little bit easier for me, just going back to the the wonderful women in my life, is knowing that many people called my grandmother and my mother Mm. and all of my aunts the B word too. And I thought, well, if the means people who stand up for themselves and people who stand up for the people that they care about, then I want to be a part of that sorority. Like these women raised me um, fearless. So if everybody else just thinks I'm like one of them, then that's actually not so bad. (laughs) Yeah. Then like, give me a, give me the card. I want to join the club. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. 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 And I, I, yeah, that's a good point. You sir. And what you did is you had that cohort of people to look back on and say, well, cause I, I don't know how common it would have been for a, a woman or a um, person from Haiti to live that independently and strongly, um, especially after coming to a new country, but you could look to them and say that maybe they weren't doing the normal thing, or maybe they weren't doing what everyone expected of them, or maybe people thought that they were being too assertive or whatever code word you want to put on it. Yeah. Um, but I'd rather be like them than not, you know? So yeah, that's a great, uh, yeah. Authentic as it keeps circling back around to that. Um, well, that was, that was really good advice. I think, uh, you could bottle your chutzpah and, uh, put it out there or just do a little five minute, like a five minute pep talk that people like me could watch before we go into a difficult conversation, kind of like the Rocky theme song, except for women in (laughs) academics. Um, would be great. Um, so yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So now, uh, to try to end the show on a bit of a fun note, since you and I both live in Rhode Island, um, 
we all aren't going out like we used to, but what are some of your favorite places to go in normal times? And even if you want to talk about COVID times, like, are you doing takeout stuff now? You said you have Yeah, we are doing, uh, we're not doing as much takeout. Uh, Both my husband and I really love to cook. Uh, So this has us um, to Mm -hmm. do more and more cooking at home. Um, I, if I had, if I were not a physician, I would be a French pastry chef. So um, in my, you know, when I have a little bit. <laughs> oh, I love it. Is that a family well, thing? Is that something that you, did you I grow up eating that it kind later, of thing? Actually, that well, my, my mom was fantastic cook. My grandmother was an amazing cook. And Haitian cuisine, mm-hmm. most Haitian people will say this, but Haitian cuisine is like one of the best types of cuisine. It's so good. It's so flavorful, so spiced. Um, and so I've always grown up with good food around me and I learned to cook well and, um, my husband loves to cook and he's also uh, uh, Haitian. And so we cook a lot of Haitian food. So in terms of my upbringing, I feel like it gave me a good palate and gave me a good way of distinguishing what tastes good and what doesn't taste good. Um, but when I was an undergraduate um, at Brown, I spent uh, a semester abroad mm-hmm. in Paris. I was actually a French literature major. Um, and so I got to study at the Sorbonne for a semester and it was fantastic. And what I learned was that in addition to loving French literature, I really love French pastries. So I came back to the U.S. and started. <laughs> yes, 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 and started doing. I hundred percent agree. Yes, yes, yes. There was a French bakery when so I lived good. in Denver. It was my favorite. Oh, so wonderful! And it was like the first yes. time that I yeah, so good. For, so you came back from France, and now best, you're a French pastry fan. French and so you just figured um, it out. I could find, yeah. and it was very fine. And so my husband and I started um, trying to figure uh-huh. out recipes of croissant to make on our own. Uh, and so that is where my my baking um, began, and it's still ongoing. It's a, we're we're always still trying to perfect. Um, different pastries and I have a lot of fun baking. So he does a lot of the cooking. I do a lot of the baking. Um, and now that we're all in quarantine, uh, whenever I, I'm not on service and not um, doing stuff with the residents, I'm, I'm trying to do as much baking as possible. Um, but before COVID, uh, probably our favorite restaurant to go to was, um, there was a, it was a tie uh, between Persimmon, um, which we absolutely loved uh, and got to go there and dinner a couple of times. And uh, Plant City, mm-hmm. uh, believe it or not, we are not vegan uh, at all. And we tried Plant City out uh, once with my two children, one of whom is uh-huh. like carnivorous. Like if he could just eat meat 24 hours a day, seven days a week and not see a vegetable, he probably would. So we brought him to Plant City. He was very skeptical. And then he sat down yes. um, and he had their truffle, their mushroom truffle pizza. And he was like, oh, my God, mom, this is amazing. So that was someplace that we all. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, good. <laughs> I actually really like Plant City as well. I like. Yeah, I didn't think really, I would really as much good. as I did just because I really love dairy. But it was really good. I liked it. Um and- and there is a French bakery that I went to. I only went once because we went maybe three or four months before COVID hit, but it, it was excellent. I can't remember the name of it. It's oh. over in like the Italian part of Providence, but I had a some sort of, 
Uh, oh, it might not be specifically French, but it's a bakery, and I had a um, <laughs> tart, a fruit tart that I swear changed my life. Oh, so um, maybe it. once COVID's over, you should try going there. Wonderful. <laughs> um, and I'm sure maybe eventually, like it's, it's in some point, your residents probably benefit from your love of baking as well. Because I know I used to bring baked treats to my trainees as well. But I haven't been doing that because I'm so afraid they won't eat them because they're afraid I'm going to get them sick. <laughs> <laughs> which might be a little nutty, but that's kind of who I am. So, um, well, I thank you. Uh, <laughs> I thank you so much for coming today. This was a lot of um, fun so to talk for to you. And it I feel like I learned great so much. Time so to get a chance so to speak with you. So um, I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. 